So as 1980s fright rockers Europe once sang so eloquently, it is the final countdown. As polling day draws nearer this week, Boris talks tough on a deal between Labour and the SNP. That Labour government must negotiate for every penny happy of spending with the Scottish Nationalist Party. And later on we'll meet the leader of a party made up of disgruntled union activists and socialists. But spoiler alert, the leader is not Ed Miliband. You can't really get a cigarette paper now on broad economic policy between the main three parties. Labour isn't Labour anymore. Okay, so time was when uh, the launch of the SNP manifesto would barely merit a mention down south. But this is the proof that this election is something different. And what Nicola Sturgeon has to say this time round really does matter. If you vote SNP on May the 7th, we will make your voice heard more loudly than it has ever been heard before at Westminster. For as long as Scotland remains part of the Westminster system, we have a shared interest with you in making that system work better for all of us, in making it work for the many, not the few. And while the Conservatives continue to insist they're capable of winning outright, they've spent most of the last week talking instead about the supposed dangers of a pact between Labour and the SNP. Here's what the Mayor of London, Boris Johnson, says would happen to the capital if the Nationalists hold the whip hand. Hobbled by the SNP, Labour would steer investment, vital investment in infrastructure away from London and with the most left-wing agenda towards business since Michael Foote, Labour would attack the very wealth-creating sectors that we need to pay for public services and pay for the infrastructure that this city deserves. What is the hope for investment in London under a Miliband government that is in the pocket of the Scottish Nationalist Party? What can any mayor of London hope to achieve in negotiations with the government if that Labour government must in turn negotiate for every penny packet of spending with the Scottish Nationalist Party, with the SNP? Once again, we've abandoned Manchester this week and Robert Meakin is with me down here in London, indeed in a key marginal North London swing seat. Robert, let, let, let's start with the SNP. Mm. Without the SNP surge, we'd probably be talking about whether Ed Miliband might be able to get a majority. Absolutely. That is the, the story of this general election, potentially, really, is Scotland. That is the main plot line running through this thing now. Just by the sheer number of seats they're going to win, it looks like they're going to be Labour MPs decapitated all over the place. Come May what the an image. What an image. I don't mean to say... Like bridge parts. Bloody image <laughs> onto the airwaves. But yeah, it does have that whiff of the absolute disaster for the Labour Party. And as a result, of course, it, it's put the SNP at the focal point of the election. That's why the Tories are obsessing about them so blatantly. You would think, given that the SNP surge is the thing that's going to hold Labour back from heading towards that majority, you would think, in a way, it's in the Conservative Party's interests. The more Labour seats that fall to the SNP, the harder Ed Miliband's job is of getting into Downing Street. I think they are, and the Tories are well aware of that, of course, that the an S, a good SNP result in Scotland, of course, indirectly helps them in England. So I think it works them in two ways. It, 
it, it doesn't mean that the Tories moaning about the SNP in Scotland, all that does is just turn more SNP voters against the English political establishment. Suits them fine. But in those marginal seats in England, in the Midlands and the South, where, yeah, where, where this election could be yeah, won or lost, I think they really believe that anti-SNP message, that SNP scare story of them propping up a Labour government. They do genuinely think that works in those key marginals. Otherwise, clearly, they wouldn't be going on about it in the fashion they are. So the theory is that if you talk up the terrible dangers of mm. the SNP going into a deal with Labour, even though both parties are now saying they don't think there is even going to be a deal... Mm-hmm that that frightens enough people in England who are thinking about voting Labour into playing it safe and going with the Conservatives, that it limits the Conservatives' losses. Yeah, that's a game plan. And also, they say that it suits David Cameron Co., quite frankly, for the SNP to run riot, actually, in Scotland. So I think they are playing a, a double-edged game there, to a degree. We heard Boris a, a minute ago talking about you know Labour hobbled by the SNP, having to get... <laughs> Nicola Sturgeon or Alex Salmon, having to get them to agree to everything they want to do. But Ed Miliband has said time and again, there isn't going to be a deal. Now Nicola Sturgeon has said that because Ed Miliband has, in her words, been bullied into ruling it out, she doesn't think there's going to be a deal. Does anyone believe them? Well, what is a deal exactly? I think a deal can take many, many forms. And I think the sort of, uh, look at the, the pragmatic running of over government then deals need to be struck during that time. And it's very likely, of course, some arrangement will have to be made, even if on a vote-by-vote basis. The way it's stacking up at the moment, it will, some sort of arrangement would have to be made to get certain legislation through. That seems almost inevitable if Ed Miliband's going to get into Downing Street. So they can talk to the blue in the face about there not being a formal deal. A deal of some kind will probably have to be made as they go along. But they are, you know, they're as bad as each other, aren't they? Oh, yeah, because in exactly the same way as Ed Miliband is very unlikely to be able to govern without coming to some arrangement with somebody else, neither is David Cameron. And so while the Conservatives are roaming the country... Mm. These, these nightmare images of Ed Miliband as a puppet on the SNP strings. The exact same thing could be said about David Cameron. It's a mirror it image, be, yes. It could be the DUP, it could be the Liberal Democrats, it could be UKIP, yeah. any number of parties who they might be trying to win over. And that is the farcical element of this election. Thank goodness we won't have to listen to this nonsense much longer. Uh, and Ed Miliband and Ed Balls on the one side saying, uh, we're certainly working towards a majority, we're certainly not going to be doing any deals with the SNP. Bang, and look, the Conservatives will be propped up by UKIP, Lib Dems, blah, blah. And then Cameron and Osborne saying the same argument about the Labour Party, this disingenuous stuff is finally running out of gas. Self-promotion alert that I've written a blog about about this. Why not not, not check that blog out while you're listening? I have. I have listeners. Why why not join literally six other people who've read? (laughs) About, you know, yes, this is the most exciting election ever. This is the most exciting we-don't-know-what's-going-to-happen election. But it's also, by some margin, the most tedious election campaign I have ever covered. It's controlled. It's boring. And I think part of the reason is that the voters have already come to the conclusion that nobody's going to win. Partly because we keep telling them nobody's going to win this election. Nobody's going to have some last-minute charge to get over the line and get a majority. That's not happening. So the voters have tweaked that. And firstly, they don't understand why the politicians are talking about winning a majority when that's obviously not going to happen. It's completely beyond (laughs) the realms of credibility now. And, And secondly, they've also tweaked that all the really important decisions about who's going to be in power and how it's going to work are going to be made after they've voted 
behind closed doors in, in meetings they're not invited to. That's quite right. And as you say, you know, with it arguably being a dull campaign, we know where the, 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 arguably the, the, the main story unfolds after May the 7th, begins on May the 8th, and you say these deals are being hatched. So it's almost like there's a phony war going on. We have to get this nonsense out of the way, and then the real, the real business is done. Let me give you an example of how, uh, how this campaign works. Um, that, that click of Boris we heard that sounded like it was recorded in a toilet somewhere yeah. it was actually recorded in a factory in North London uh, which rents out big building equipment to things like Crossrail. And this was the venue for a speech that Boris was going to give uh, a few days ago. And I, like everybody else, is covering gets an email the night before saying, be here at a certain time. And you turn up to a factory where I'm told that no one's allowed to take photographs or pictures of Boris arriving. All we can do is record the speech that he will give in a shed surrounded by a backdrop of bulldozers and earth lifters and heaven only knows what else. I walk into the room to find a couple of banners up. Uh, The front four rows taken up by Conservative Party candidates and their agents. The next six rows empty. And then the back row for the press. So I said to the, um, the very nice woman from the Conservative Press Office who was there, I said, so when is, when is Boris going to do his sit-down one-to-one interviews with, with the press? Oh, Boris isn't doing any interviews. There'll be a question and answer session. You'll be able to ask questions at the end. Um, so then we, we sit, um, the, the few journalists that have turned up, staring at these empty rows of seats, and about two minutes before he's due to speak, suddenly there's this influx of people. And one of the other reporters leans forward to these three girls who are sitting in front of us and said, do you by any chance work here? And she said, oh, yeah, yeah, we got told to come in and fill all the seats. So what's happened is that the mayor of London has travelled to a remote industrial estate in northwest London to give a speech to some conservative candidates, three journalists, three television cameras, and a room full of board office workers have been told to make up the numbers. He gives his speech, it's recorded, it's played out. He doesn't do any interviews. When he asks the questions, the first four are from some of those conservative candidates and supporters at the front, whose questions are all along the lines of, Boris, could you explain once again how we're much better than that other shower? Yeah, tough uh, question. Tough, tough crowd. Then he gets to the, uh, the journalists eventually, and we get to ask one question each before the microphone is snatched off us, which, you know, because Boris is good at this. That's a tactic they've, they've started doing the Tories this campaign. You never get to hold You don't the hold microphone. the mic, so you can't do a comeback at them. No, there's, there's no, there's no prospect. That's specific to them as well. That I, think, I think to a certain extent that's a little unfair. I think they are all doing it, but they, yes, they're all doing this trick now of you never get to hold the microphone. It's, it's held in front of you and snatched away as soon as you try to take a breath and and this is how the election campaign is for this north london swing seat that we sit in tonight ed miliband came here last week he was driven in on his battle bus he posed for a photograph with the local candidate he delivered the stump speech he'd probably done six times that day made certain he got the name of the constituency right the name of the candidate right he wandered off to an ice cream parlor he had his photograph taken i don't know whether he's eating an ice cream or not i don't know where he stands on being around food at the moment i would bet not probably not (laughs) then he gets in his battle bus and he's off And, and our political leaders are conducting an election campaign in which they are trying as hard as they can to never meet or speak to a real voter they want to avoid that whole the Mrs. Duffy nuclear yeah. bomb that can come and just no no bigoted women, no yeah. angry people outside hospitals, yeah. no egg throwers that you might end yeah. up punching, none of that stuff. But I'm afraid those are the things that people remember mm. about election campaigns. And so 
a campaign where nothing much happens for a few weeks yeah. and where the voters think they already know what the outcome is going to be and they're not really involved in how it finishes ends up being pretty dull. It does. I, th- I mean, you think of, and it's now a long time ago, 20-odd years ago, you think of, you had the Prime Minister, then John Major, there was a good chance you would see him in your town, standing on his famous soapbox. Because David Cameron has decided to inject a little passion in, into the campaign yeah. by doing speeches that, I have to say, reminded me a little bit of John Major, because instead of a podium and a microphone and, a, and this sort of thing, he was, I think he was on a little box because he was surrounded yes. by people. He was heightened. He was a little bit above them, yes. which makes yes. me think that there might have been a box yes. involved. Yes. No microphone, a lot of fist pumping, mm. a lot of that kind of middle class fist pumping, mm. um, a bit more of the estuary accent. Yeah. And uh, and he swore. I mean, he swore. He's like, I, I bloody do want to win. I know. And it's. it's it did. It didn't sound like a natural swearer. There are certain people you know a natural swearer. It's like you know when you hear Alistair Campbell speaking. You know that man has got plenty of expletives in the canon. Cameron doesn't. You, you almost expected him to add it with you know my giddy aunt or something like that. Some sort of good old fashioned phrase. It was. Uh, but I think also he's been criticised not you know, possessing enough passion. <laughs> it's almost like someone's plugged him in. And it was just a bit too much. It was like okay, yeah. now you know we said more. Okay, now just a bit less. A little like less. That's a third. A little less. Just yeah. Just, yeah. just you know, just just concentrate on trying to look prime ministerial because yes. that, that's the edge you've got. Mm. It's like all all of when he was when he announced the other day, Paul Mo, and he said he supported West Ham, then remembered he's supposed to support Aston Villa. It's almost as if. He just picked a football team out of thin air and pretended to follow you, them. You would think the hazards of pretending to be a sports fan, it's just not worth the energy because you get caught out in the end. You know? but, Come on, <laughs> the sports fans, people. Okay, so it's time now for an exciting new feature on some of the lesser known parties who are battling for your attention at this election. We've called it Those That Also Stand. We are, of course, in a world of multi-party politics, maybe a little more multi than you may have imagined. So we're going to meet some of the campaigners that you are less likely to see on the 10 o'clock news. So this week, a left-wing party made up of union members and socialists committed to fighting the bosses for a fairer share of the pie. Yes, it's Labour. No, hang on. Um, it's... My name's Dave Nellist and I'm the National Chair of the Trade Unionist and Socialist Coalition. Tusk is a trade unionist-based and socialist coalition that's the most serious anti-austerity force in the elections. We not only want to prevent any further cuts in public spending and people's living standards, but actually to reverse those have taken place. To do that, we need to have a bigger control of the economy in public hands, so we're unashamedly in favour of nationalisation of gas, water, electric, rail, post and the banks, and then using that money to provide a decent living standing for all in society, not just the millionaires. Most people would say a party formed by trade unionists and socialists is the Labour Party. Well, they would do if they were thinking over a century ago when it was, uh, but in the last 20 or 30 years, you can't really get a cigarette paper now on broad economic policy between the main three parties. Labour isn't Labour anymore. What's your strategy? What's your aim for this election? What capacity do you think there is to grow in the years ahead? Next year and the year after, there won't be this cover of a general election over the top of the council elections. Then we'll have to debate about whatever mix of coalition parties are in that next uh, government. If the austerity continues and local libraries are going, local youth clubs are going, local community centres are going, the council elections of next year will be entirely different than they've been uh, uh, this year. And the work, part of the work of Tusk is to build a network of supporters, to build our uh, growth, particularly inside the trade union uh, movement, to be challenging those uh, seats in the future. One 
one quarter of our 800 candidates are members, some quite senior activists, in Unite, Labour's biggest backer. So our uh, strategy is not just the candidates we put up, it's the influence of the debate in the trade union movement, which, we, we, which we're beginning to have. You want to renationalise lots of industries that have been sold off over the last 30 or 40 years. How much is that going to cost? Well, in terms of the uh, richest owners, the billionaires and the millionaires, it won't cost much because I will deem that they've had their profits out of these industries and we'll take them back in the public good. Now, something like um, one f- uh, 5% of, for example, the banks are owned by pension funds. They should be fully compensated. That's people's future uh, uh, pensions. If there's some pensioners they've got a few hundred pounds worth of savings for their old age, in them, they should be fully compensated. But billionaires and millionaires, the very people who got us into this mess seven years ago by their gambling and speculation, no. Well, that sounds like you'd spend a lot of your time in the courts fighting the people who own those businesses. Well, I think that public opinion would be with us uh, on that. If you look at recent opinion polls, then uh, between 2 to 1 and 3 to 1 of all people in the country when asked should things like gas, water, electric be in the public hands say yes when you add, add the NHS into that it goes to over 80% in favour so I think the court of public opinion is where we'd fight and win that battle It's possible that your party albeit you say representing people who feel they've been abandoned by Labour could make Labour's job harder and put the Conservatives in power. Well, there's, there's no law in politics that says Labour entitled to those votes. When Labour was last in office, it lost some five million, mainly working-class votes around the country, and they haven't regained at least half of those. And the risk is, of course, there are other forces now within society who could attract those votes, such as UKIP. And we were set up by Bob Crow, the late uh, leader of the RMT Transport Union. One of our functions is to give a working-class and socialist alternative to those former Labour voters who uh, perhaps are thinking of, of UKIP as an alternative. So it isn't a question of taking votes off uh, Labour in some malign uh, uh, way. Labour are not entitled to those votes anymore. But if you had to choose a government led by the Conservatives or a government led by Labour, which would you choose? Well, regretfully, there isn't that sort of clear choice anymore. Back in the 1950s, the 97% of people voted only Labour or Tory. At this election, I reckon it would be 10 times the difference, in other words, 30 to 40% of people, that will be looking for some sort of alternative. And I want a trade union and socialist alternative to be attractive to them so that parties like UKIP don't soak up those former Labour uh, voters. And it's a case now that, amongst the three biggest parties, you cannot see a distinctly different economic agenda. There's an overlapping austerity agenda that has to be a challenge. So frankly, there isn't that much choice between. There's a a choice of management style as to who the next uh, coalition is. There's a choice of speed of implementation of some of the cuts. But in terms of direction of the economy, there's no choice. You talked about UKIP and said that that was picking up lots of votes of people who are disgruntled with some of the more established parties. But UKIP's polling at... 15-16% 15-16% sometime. You're not polling anywhere near that level. Is it possible that your message might have played out a little bit better in the 1970s than today? I think regretfully the answer is much more simple than that. We've never been a question on a poll. The BBC has never done a poll in which Tusk has been one of the options. But you ask our policies one by one. You ask those who are in favour of the renationalisation of the railways or the Royal Mail or gas, water and electricity and by two, three or four to one you get majorities in favour of our policies. If those people could then then say, and there's a party that's actually delivering those policies, then if we were a question on the uh, opinion poll, I think we'd do a lot better. So that's Dave Nellis, who was a Labour MP in the 1980s, now leading Tusk, the trade unionist and socialist coalition. They are standing in more than 100 seats across Mm. the country. And yet, Robert, a lot of people probably haven't heard of them. 
Not at all. No, I mean, I still think Tusk. I still think it's a, a Fleetwood Mac album. Yeah, it's terrible to say, but true. I think that the, the Labour Party, you know, the, the the reaction against it and the sort of breakaway groups, which this is this is this is obviously one of. I don't. I don't think this has found it. Obviously, haven't found the significant votes as yet. You know, you argue, you could say that the Green Party arguably have stolen part of the Labour Party's thunder in certain areas. Maybe in the past, the Lib Dems would, to a degree. UKIP, you could now say, particularly in parts of the country, you know, in the North, people would argue maybe that's a, that's a threat to the Labour Party. This group, so far, you just have to look at the figures, how they've performed in previous elections. That hasn't stood up as yet so but there is a reaction at the same time against the establishment Labour Party and that so-called metropolitan elite that runs it. One of the interesting things I think is that the parties that are picking up momentum are anti-austerity parties. Mm. Green Party is very anti-austerity, the SNP very anti-austerity and though the Institute of Fiscal Studies points out that actually if you analyse their plans the SNP are planning just as many austerity measures as yes. the Labour Party are. But, but it, those parties that have a different message, mm. when you think the main three parties are all to some extent, as, as we heard Dave Nellis say there, it's not a choice between cuts and no cuts. It's a choice between how the cuts will be divvied up, how, yes. when the cuts will come, but there will be cuts. Mm. And so the parties that say, actually, why are there cuts? Why couldn't mm. we have a different, a different direction? Why can't we have a debate about it? Some of them are cutting through. Mm. These guys are really struggling to cut through. Now, they'll say when you talk to them, oh, it's because the media won't talk to mm. us and they won't acknowledge us. Well, there are interviews going on. There's one yeah, of them. Yeah. But you know, maybe, maybe when people hear people talk about compulsory renationalization mm. of all the privatized industries, taking the banks back into public ownership yeah. without compensating anybody, I'm not quite sure how that would even work. It does sound a little bit like the 1970s. It's prehistoric again. stuff, isn't it? I think that's the perception that a lot of people have of the party. To shake that off would take some doing. And I think their clothes, as I say, have been stolen presently by some of the other you know, left, left-centre parties outside the Labour establishment. Now, I know this is already a listener favourite, so uh, we've, we've brought it out once again. And it's time to spin the Wheel of Coalition. That sound effect never gets unnerving. It, it's 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 you know it's not like nails on a blackboard no, I'm at all. Proud of you for spending so much money on it. You've no idea. Yeah. I'm bankrupt basically. Yeah. Let's give it another spin. Yes. Okay, now it's landed. Now I'm quite happy about mm. this because you might think there shouldn't be a sign on the wheel that mm. says no coalition, but it does. So. Well, if we believe our party leaders presently, exactly for a majority, it's, 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 as, if it, it's majority. as if it knows. It's like the magic robot yes. that used to know the answers to all the questions. It's a bit like that. So l- let's work this one out. Nobody wins a majority, mm. but one of the two main parties says we're going to govern on our own mm. and try and cobble together enough votes to get through, vote by vote. Mm. I mean, that's we're not going to get any sleep. We're going to be up till three, four in the morning. It will be madness, and it's obviously alien territory for us. At the same time, I wonder how it would fall a few weeks, a few months in, because you can't have part other parties. It doesn't do the other parties any good if they constantly seem to be bringing down the government and leaving the country in limbo. So it's, it's a very, very difficult one to call. If, for argument's sake, David Cameron ends up with the, the biggest numbers post-May the 7th and tries to go through, if he is repeatedly mugged, by Liberal Democrats. 
I just think the country would soon be appalled. You know, you can imagine the, the frenzy that'd be whipped up, that these bandits are destroying the running of this country. You could see. So I don't know. It seems unworkable, but then there's part of me that thinks maybe some unsatisfactory understanding would develop in time. I just think it's difficult for us to get our heads around presently because it just hasn't happened for so long. I mean, we may end up praying for the certainty of the 2010 outcome because yeah. at least in 2010, from the moment the polls closed, you can look at the numbers and say there is one way of doing this where the numbers add up, which is to take the Conservatives and Lib Dems and put them together and suddenly you had a reasonable majority. And it was the only one that yes. you could cobble together. <clears throat> Whereas if we end up in a situation where Labour and Tories have roughly the same number of seats, say around about 280, and the Lib Dems end up with half the number of seats they have now, you can add the Lib Dems to either of those parties mm. and you still don't have a majority. You can add the SNP and you do have a majority, but you also have three parties that can't work together. Yeah. You add in UKIP and what do you get? Two? Yeah. Um, so I think that the options from both sides, compared to what we've just had, are almost unworkable in terms yes, of trying to create is, a formal is. coalition. So the notion that they are going to do anything other than try and some sort of loose combination mm. deals. The organised chaos, though, wouldn't it? I mean, so you, you've got, we've got on the one side, for argument's sake, Conservatives... Lib Dems, if they're in any mood to go in again with the Conservatives after what's going to happen to them on May the 7th, DUP, for argument's sake, could that hold together in some form? Or, as you say, <laughs> Labour, Lib Dems, SNP. My goodness, what a concoction. But they would seem to be what we're looking at in terms of the, 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 the two blocks that could, one where this sort of arrangement could be in place. And, my goodness, it threatens to be... It's hard to imagine how it's going to work, and I don't think it will work initially, but maybe they'll just have to make it work in some form. So go on, what are you going to do? You know what, maybe maybe they'll just have to come together. They'll have to be a, a, a little more love yes. and a little less, Let's little have a less group anger. Hug. Let's have a group hug. Okay? You know, this, this could be the making of our politicians. They could all just come together, <laughs> you know, as one... Become bigger human beings. I I can see it. I can see it happening. I'm feeling a lot more optimistic than I was at the start. David Cameron and Ed Balls embracing. Come on, let's forget all those things we've said to each other. I can just. I, it's a beautiful. It's a beautiful sight. Yeah. And I look forward to seeing it. Um, I think that wraps us up uh, for this week. Next week, as we lurch towards Indecision Day, uh, I think we're we're going to try and give you a cheat sheet of things to watch out for on election night. It'll be your handy cut out and keep guide. And then when none of them happen, we can just, you know, just forget that it ever happened.